Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 21st, 2023. Um, a very bright, sunny Wednesday in San Francisco, which is appropriate given that it's solstice day, the longest day of the year, the most sunlight, the least darkness. Just came back from uh, Riga in Latvia, where it was uh, sunny almost all night. Remarkable experience. Uh, and it, I guess it brings some context to what the headlines are about a group of people stuck underneath the ocean in their titanic submersible um, safety questions, gripping this drama, gripping the world about this missing submersible. Uh, in an odd way, uh, there's a philosophical question here. Of course, uh, Plato talked about his cave, the idea of the cave in which we're always stuck underground. Philosophers love sunlight, and they suggest that if we want to be true philosophers, we need to look at the sunlight. We have a philosopher on the show today, appropriately called Peter Cave. Uh, he's the author of many books on philosophy, and he has a new book out, How to Think Like a Philosopher, Scholars, Dreamers, and Sages Who Can Teach Us How to live. Uh, he's joining us from Soho uh, in central London. Uh, Peter, is uh, Solstice Day a good day to talk about philosophy? I think any day is a very, very good day to talk about philosophy. And there's nothing special then about Solstice Day, about this sunny day. Um, I mean, a philosophers historically, um, they've always wanted us to get out into the sunlight to escape the cave, Plato's cave. Do you buy that allegory, Peter, or is it... Well, I enjoy the allegory, but Plato did insist that his guardians would have to go back inside the cave in order to run the city state. So he did recognize some community spirit there. They weren't just going to flee the cave and never return. So there's some value um, in the cave. Of course, uh, for the people stuck in this submersible, um, I'm not sure. It sounds like it's a bit of a squeeze down there. But if they did have uh, space to read and they happen to have your book, um, perhaps the title should be How to Die Like a Philosopher. One of your heroes, Socrates, of course, uh, his whole life seems to be in some ways a, a preparation for dying like a philosopher. Should philosophers, Peter, should they be in the business of preparing themselves to die? I'm not sure about the word business, but yes, I think we should be well aware of the fact we are mortal, or I believe all of us are mortal. Um, there's a nice story about Samuel Beckett, the playwright, and I count him as a philosopher in my book. He was walking along um, Regent's Park in London to go to the cricket, and he was commenting about how the skies are blue and the trees are lovely and so forth. And his friend said, yes, Sam, it's good to be alive, isn't it? To which Sam said, I wouldn't go as far as that. So there is a question about whether it is good to be alive or whether it's better not to have existed in the first place. Walking is important for you. Um, you, uh, in, in some of your, your essays that you suggest that many of the philosophers featured in this new book 
trod the streets of North London, your home time. What's the relationship, um, in your view, uh, Peter, between walking and um, and being a philosopher? There are many great walkers in the history of philosophy. We did a show with Michael Kimmelman, the architecture critic of the oh, New nice. York Times, who believes that the only way to save a New York is on foot. What is it about walking that brings out the philosopher or attracts the philosopher? It does just seem to be a fact of human nature that when you are walking around, pondering, thinking, particularly in discourse with other people, then you can often bring out ideas which otherwise you wouldn't have done so. So with Plato, we often have him talking about Socrates, walking along with his friends, discussing um, what, is, what is the best way to live. And you've already mentioned that Socrates had the idea that there, the unexamined life is not worth living, he said. I'm not sure if I go as far as saying that. I think at times we ought not to be examining our lives all the time. That might be a bit too much. But I do strongly support Socrates and Plato in thinking that we do need to reflect on how we live and what's going on in our lives. And I think you find that with quite a few philosophers, and certainly you find it with Descartes and Spinoza, as well as, as I implied, some people who you think of as not philosophers, such as Iris Murdoch. Iris Murdoch, for example, talked about unselfing. She is very aware how many of us get trapped into thinking about ourselves and trying to gain experiences for ourselves, whereas maybe you can appreciate more about the world if you unself and just take in the experiences of her example is the kestrel in the trees. And, and you find that with quite a few philosophers. Kierkegaard is another interesting philosopher in that area. Um, he would stress to all of us that if you are going to think about mortality and your life, it really is important not to start thinking of it in an abstract way. So he has a little quip about a bookseller called Soldium who woke up one morning and didn't realise he had died. Namely, you shouldn't know about your mortality in terms of all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's a bit of abstract logic. You should think about your life and realise that you yourself are mortal, and this may be your last breath. And so what sort of life would you feel you ought to live if this were the case? I don't know if your viewers know much about Friedrich Nietzsche, the 19th century so-called existentialist philosopher, but he gave us a wonderful concern in terms of what he called the greatest weight, the greatest weight being the eternal recurrence. And he says, imagine that a demon strode upon you and told you that this life which you are living now would be repeated eternally, exactly as it is, time and time again without end. Every little speck of dust would be the same and so forth. And he goes on in a big way about that. Then he says, and how well disposed could you be to your life to look forward to that eternity? Or would you fall to the ground and gnash your teeth in anguish at the very thought? The, the idea of the eternal recurrence, you see, is a nonsense idea, but it is an idea which might tempt us to wonder how are we living our lives? Are right. we being uh, yeah, it's, it's, you ask about Nietzsche and uh, the viewers on this show. We haven't actually done any shows on Nietzsche himself, but we did an interesting show with... Um, an environmental writer, Justin Gregg, um, who has a new book out. If Nietzsche was a narwhal, what human intelligence reveals about 
human, uh, what animal intelligence, excuse me, reveals about human stupidity. Nietzsche, of course, seems ambivalent about humanity or what it means to be a human. Should we be trying, mm -hmm. do, do philosophers want to, or should we want to think outside ourselves as a species? Is that what thinking like a philosopher is, trying to escape uh, what is called our, our species being? I think philosophy often wants to point out how there's the conflict between taking an objective view of the world in which you step back, you try to take a scientific view, you try to understand how the world is, as opposed to taking a very subjective view about what is it like to be a human being with all our desires and anguishes. And so I'm sure you know there obviously is a big ethical question about speciesism how we are, have been and still are very unkind to different species, um, which are not our species. And so, yes, there's a big ethical question there. I also think it's important not to think that we human beings are so great we can solve all these problems. I think we should recognise that there are great mysteries. And indeed, one way of looking at the mystery is to say, as Wittgenstein does, namely, when, you, when people have thought they've understood the meaning of life, often they lapse into silence. And so Wittgenstein's famous quip is, whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must remain silent. And Wittgenstein and indeed Schopenhauer and others would see that maybe you grasp the meaning of life when you lose yourself, lose yourself, you grasp more about yourself when you lost yourself in music or the Iris Murdoch example, experiencing the kestrel flying through the sky. There, there are no easy answers, would be my observation. There are no easy answers. You, um, you, you write, it is better to be a dissatisfied Socrates than a satisfied pig. Your definition of philosophy seems very broad. I mean, not, you've talked about Murdoch, who was, was a philosopher, also probably better known as a a novelist, uh, your, book, your book touches on Lewis Carroll, um, and many, other, many other figures who one doesn't normally associate with philosophy. hasn't, And a lot of people have argued this, Peter. Has philosophy itself become a little bit of a cave, uh, uh, a, a place formerly in academic terms? You used to teach, you spent your life teaching philosophy within the university. Has it itself become a kind of prison? One reason for writing the book and being keen to write the book was I do believe that many people think of philosophy now as very abstract, very um, geared to universities, um, abstruse, and sort of not available to the general public. My book, I like to think, will help people to realize that it can be exhilarating, it can be accessible, it can be inspiring. Get out of the and cave with Peter Cave, right? That should be the, uh, the sales pitch for the book, Peter. Could you possibly think I'd be want to sell the book? Yes, I'd love people to read the book. Well, ideally, I'd love them to buy the book. Whether they read it is another matter. Some years ago, I wrote a book on humanism, which had some criticism of religion, to which I, my comment was, well, I don't mind if they burn my books as long as they buy them first, mm. which is quite important. But going back to the dissatisfied Socrates, there is a wonderful example I derive from Plato in which he says, people often think the only thing that is important is pleasure. Well, if that's true, then why, in my version, why don't you buy some itching powder 
and the back scratcher and start sprinkling the powder. You itch, then you scratch. You itch, then you scratch. You have lots and lots of pleasures. But would that be a good human life? Is that the sort of life you want? Well, I suspect the answer will be no. At the end of the day, there's far more to life than simple pleasures. And that is what John Stuart Mill was getting up when he was saying... Right, was John Stuart Mill, life. of course, who lived around you in Soho, uh, was brought up as a utilitarian, and then he re reacted against it, against his father and Jeremy Bentham. Um, are, are, you suggesting, well, are you suggesting, Peter, that Bentham's utilitarianism, you can find Bentham, a stuffed Bentham up the street in, uh, at University College, that he wasn't a philosopher, that utilitarianism, this idea of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain is an anti-philosophical doctrine? No, not at all. Clearly, Jeremy Bentham was a philosopher, but it shows that philosophers can disagree about how best to live a life. And I think that's an important point to take away on that issue. Um, I've been going back to John Stuart Mill. He was, of course, very keen to point out there are higher pleasures as well as lower pleasures. And so whilst Bentham tended to say, well, we could do a calculation and pushpin is as good as um, poetry if you get as much pleasure from it, Mill would want to say, no, no, there's far more to life than that. And then Mill, I find, was a very touching figure here. You wrote a book, um, Peter, called Can a Robot Be Human? It came out in 2007. It's particularly relevant these days, um, given the way in which we have AI now replicating thinking and language. Can we teach a, a computer to philosophize? Is that conceivable? I suppose I look at it at a slightly different angle. Just think about what we are engaged in doing now. According to some neurologists and some scientists, apparently the meaning which we give to our words, the understanding, the truths, which come about through the movement of our vocal cords, all derives from odd electrochemical currents inside our brains. So what is that relationship between an electrochemical neurological current and talking about things with meaning? What is that relationship? I think it's far too casual to think, oh, there must be a relationship in that way because we don't really know how it works. How can it possibly be that those little changes inside your brain, which causes these changes in our vocal cords, which causes changes in the air currents, which lead you to hear what I'm saying and so forth, how can that generate the idea of um, meaning, the idea of being able to talk about sentences and giving sense to them? I think that's a deeply baffling puzzle. And that puzzle exists, whether we're talking about human beings or talking about robots. What about reality itself? Um, reality, oh, that's a nice. Yeah, that's a nice <laughs> subject for you. I'm sure you can talk a little bit about that. We've had, you used to teach at NYU. Um, Here in London. And uh, yeah, in London, but an NYU philosopher, David Chalmers has been on the show. He seems to think that the world might be a giant simulation. What do you make of that? Is that how we should be thinking like a philosopher? The idea that staring perhaps at a video game online is in much more real than going out into Regent's Park and walking around? I, I think we need to decide quite what is being meant when one talks about these ideas. But let me give you a similar comment. 
by George Edward Moore, G.E. Moore, a very influential philosopher in the early 20th century who actually influenced Virginia Woolf and the Bloomsbury Group. When he was a young man, up in Cambridge, the, one of the dominant philosophers then was Je John McTaggart, Ellis McTaggart, who argued that time is unreal. And Moore would say, Jack, do you really mean that I didn't have my breakfast before I had my dinner? Time is unreal. Whatever does that come down to? Are you talking about breakfast and dinner not being in temporal order? So when I hear these other philosophers talking about maybe all of this is a dream, or maybe it's um, maybe the more important issue is the artificial visual simulations and so forth, quite where is the nub of it? What is really being claimed? So one value I think of my book, I hope, is that from someone such as G.E. Moore, you should always ask philosophers, and indeed politicians, and indeed scientists, so quite what do you mean? How does what you say relate to our lives here? I think Moore is a very valuable philosopher in that sense of trying to get us to pin down what we mean by, by our different sentences. Moore is also very important because when he became elderly, he was looked upon as a sage, and he rarely said anything, and people thought, oh, he just thinks he's so important now. And they said to him more once, why, why, are you, why did you say nothing? To which Moore modestly said, I couldn't think of anything to say. I think that's another useful thought from my book, I hope, through Moore. Namely, we ought not just to say things because we need to fill in the silence. A related point there from the great Wittgenstein, ah, Wittgenstein, is he said, when two philosophers meet, you really should say to each other, take your time. A problem in today's ethos, I think, is that politicians and scientists are expected to give quick answers, whereas we need to reflect, we need to muse upon these things, and ideally with a glass or two of wine. How, how do we distinguish, though, philosophy from fraud, Peter? Wittgenstein, you've mentioned him a couple of times, a very aggressive fellow, not particularly interested in hearing things that he didn't want to hear. A lot of people think he was a fraud, particularly Ernest Gellner. How do we distinguish nonsense from sense? How do we make, how can we distinguish a real Wittgenstein, shall we say, from a fraudulent one? Some people think he's just a fraud. Well, indeed, some people do think that, but one should obviously read what he says, and he makes some rather impressive ideas. But yes, he becomes rather fraudulent when he says enigmatic things, such as, well, we cannot speak there if we... Um, and his intolerance to other people's ideas, his unwillingness to really engage in serious debate. That's rather unfair. It's true, he was very arrogant, but he recognised that, and through, through his life, he gradually tried to become a better man. But yes, he had that arrogance, in contrast, say, to the G.E. Moore I've just mentioned to. But he, even as a young man, he was arrogant. When he was first met Bertrand Russell, who was his senior in Cambridge, um, they were scurrying around the offices looking under the desk for Russell was trying to prove to him that there was no hippopotamus in the room. And dear Wittgenstein, the young, arrogant man said, that sentence doesn't make sense. It cannot be true. It cannot be false. How can you talk about items which do not exist, such as the hippopotamus in the moon? That brings you to Lewis Carroll, who talked about, um, you may remember from the Alice books, I see nobody on the road. Oh, to be able to see nobody and from this distance too, says the White King. There's a genuine problem in reality there, but how do we manage to talk about non-existent items? 
Peter, you mentioned Lewis Carroll, very controversial figure, given um, some of the accusations about his life. Do you think that if we can learn to think like a philosopher, um, we can become better people, as I suggested, Wittgenstein wasn't a particularly good person. Um, Lewis Carroll is very controversial. There are a number of the other people you've, you've talked about. Plato seemed to be very sympathetic to one kind of dictatorship or another. Do you think that philosophy and goodness go together? Should they? What I do think is the title, How to Think Like a Philosopher, might misleadingly believe people, think people to believe that there's only one way to think like a philosopher. The key part of philosophy is the dialectic, the discussion, the argument, which is what you find in Plato. And you may well disagree with him, understandably so, but you really should address his arguments and see where he goes wrong or where he goes right. Same with Wittgenstein, same with Lewis Carroll. And I certainly do not think it's right to condemn what somebody is saying about, say, the issue of reality or the issue of morality, because in another part of their lives, they behave badly. And those, those people have compartments to their lives, and one doesn't necessarily infect another. In the case of Lewis Carroll, he made some very pertinent comments. You may remember he has Humpty Dumpty making up words to mean whatever he wants them to mean. There's glory for you, says Humpty Dumpty to Alice. I don't know what you mean by glory. Well, obviously you don't until I tell you. I mean a nice knockdown argument. Can we just make words mean whatever you want them to mean? Well, that's a very big issue these days, certainly in Britain and probably in the States, over the trans debate. Can people just choose to announce that they are a man or woman? Or is there something deep going on there? And that should be up for discussion. It ought not to be cancelled culture. We should be prepared to discuss these things from both sides. What about the gendered element? Um... Peter, you're obviously male. You have a woman on your cover. Uh, I'm not sure if women can be sages like men, maybe. Simone de Beauvoir, yes. Yeah, who, I don't know if she, well, anyway, leaving her aside, we'll talk about <laughs> Beauvoir and, uh, and Sartre. Uh, but you, you mentioned um, you mentioned Alice Murdoch. We did a show last, actually, a couple of years ago with a Benjamin Lipscomb, a uh, a historian of thought. He has a new book out, The Women Are Up to Something, on four English, very distinguished English philosophers, Elizabeth Anscombe, Philip Foot, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch. Is there a gendered element here, how to think like a philosopher? Is, is that a question that men tend to think like? You know, you, you've written this book, and there's another book, actually, with an identical title, also by a man, uh, Julian Bagini, how to think like a philosopher. Is it a male kind of way of thinking about philosophy? No, no, certainly not. In fact, I, I knew Elizabeth Anscombe a little when I was at Cambridge during the days when she gave tutorials in which she was the very sort of scratching her head philosopher, follower of Wittgenstein, deeply Catholic, and um, the co-seminar person was Bernard Williams, a very suave, sophisticated atheist philosopher, and it's quite interesting seeing these very two different ways in which these great philosophers were actually engaged in philosophy. But they did manage to engage each other. They did manage to influence each other. And so I think it's once again, there's nothing sexist or particularly male or female as to which sort of philosophy you play with. The philosopher I became more aware of recently is Simon Weil, Simon Weil 
Um, and I make the point that she brings philosophy down to earth. At one point, she was in discussion with Simone de Beauvoir. And Simone de Beauvoir was saying, oh, Simone Weil, she's always worried about so many people and being hungry and so on. Really, what's important in life is to give your life meaning, to which Simone Weil's report was, ah, I can tell you've never been hungry. I think it's important that philosophers actually engage the real world and point out that millions of people are indeed in dire straits. Do we need a philosopher to tell us that, Peter, though? Isn't that obvious? It, it should be obvious, but it's amazing how many politicians in throughout all of our different countries somehow manage conveniently to overlook that or to think it doesn't terribly matter, where it's clearly it does matter. What about politics and philosophy? Uh, your book touches on uh, Karl Marx, the great 19th century philosopher mm -hmm. who, uh, I mean, political philosopher who, who, of course, famously argued that we need to get beyond philosophy and start acting. Um, when one wants to think like a philosopher, does that by definition mean, in a Marxist sense, that we should be thinking politically? You also talk about Arendt, the great 20th century philosopher of the political. What, what is the relationship between thinking like a philosopher and thinking like a political philosopher? Again, I dare I say, you might be so bold, Andrew, that you're trying. You could be bold, Peter. I'm allowing you. I'm a humble philosopher. I'm trying to be bold. You're trying to squeeze things into categories. Philosophers come in many different shapes and sizes. They write in different ways. They have different topics which concern them. And so, yes, yeah, some philosophers very much focus on political philosophy on how society should be run. We find a part of that in Plato. We certainly find that in Hannah Arendt and in Sartre and so forth, but other philosophers will be far more concerned about, say, metaphysics, about understanding the nature of the soul, if there is a soul, or understanding the nature of religion. So I have a chapter on David Hume, um, who is a very, very good philosopher in the sense that he tries to look at the evidence with regard to belief in God, for example. Um, he also argues against miracles, and he makes a wonderful quip or as I perceive it, in my way of understanding what he says, is to say, obviously there aren't any miracles. Oops, ah, maybe there is. Namely, that so many people believe in Christianity on the basis of miracles. But so philosophers obviously have different interests at different times. And what interests, say, the great American philosopher John Rawls, a very important political philosopher, same with Robert Nozick, is rather different from what was really interesting, say, Leibniz. Mm. We, we did a show on, uh, on rules, or actually a young English uh, interpreter of rules. Beginning of Plato's Republic, don't need me to tell you this, Peter, um, there's this conversation between Thrasymachus and Socrates, which mm. launches the debate about what truth is. Um, I, I'm guessing, and I, I don't want to put words into Socrates' mouth, um, not for Why me not? to do that, but I'm guessing that Socrates wouldn't have considered Thrasymachus, who had a sort of Trumpian, a Donald Trumpian quality to him, a philosopher. You're making such a broad definition of philosopher. What, 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 what would you say to someone like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, who, who would claim that they're as much philosophers as Hume or Arendt or Wittgenstein? What distinguishes philosophers from non-philosophers? Uh, I'm not offering any definitions at all. 
So, so Trump and Johnson are as much philosophers as anyone else? Apart from mathematics, I think definitions are very dangerous because they, again, try to put straitjackets around a concept. I think what is important isn't to argue about whether X, Y, or Z is a philosopher, but is to look at what they're saying. Is there any serious thought that Donald Trump is really trying to understand the best way to live, understanding the truth of the matter? I suspect not. But obviously, some people do it more successfully than other people. Some people cover far more important topics, far more persuasively than others. So Plato is a great philosopher because he covered so much and engaged philosophy in such difficult questions that, as has been said, the rest of philosophy is but a footnote to Plato, whereas some philosophers would just focus on a small area, e.g. G.E. Moore tended to do that. But um, whether somebody is a good philosopher or not isn't a matter about whether they have the name, isn't a matter of what sort of arguments they put forward. I don't believe Trump has put forward any impressive arguments at all about how one should live or the nature of reality or the relationship between the mind and the um, brain and so forth, whereas obviously Spinoza did, obviously Descartes did. And so that's why I think you ought not to treat Trump as a serious philosopher, whereas some people would be on the borderline, of course. Once again, I say I, I avoid these sharp definitions. Think about red, orange, yellow, green, blue. Some people might say, oh, where's the difference between red and orange? Well, it's shades. It's a vague term. And at times you may see it as a reddish color, other times as an orange color. So I think of the topic should be thought of as to some degree philosophical, to some degree not. Should I have another glass of wine now? Well, that isn't terribly a philosophical question. Is it good to engage philosophy and wine? Well, I'm prejudiced. I enjoy doing it. Um, you mentioned uh, Kierkegaard earlier. Um, of course, one of the supposed, and again, I'm falling into cliche here, probably founders of nihilism, and you mentioned Nietzsche as well. We did a show last year with Wendy Seifert, a, a young Australian writer, The Sunny Nihilist, a, a declaration of the pleasure of pointlessness. Um, is in part philosophy, uh, Peter, an attempt if we think like a philosopher, or certainly if we think like Kierkegaard, can we think beyond philosophy or underneath or above it? We, and what do you make of a term like nihilism, the one that Wendy Seifert uses? Again, I think one needs to look at the context in which these words are being used. When, when Kierkegaard was condemning philosophy, at that time, is condemning the grand systems, the great systems of philosophy, which somehow thought they could produce an objective understanding of the world. Whereas for Kierkegaard, as I said earlier, what was important to him was to interpret one's own personal position in life. He tells a story against himself about how a shop opened near him, and he said, bring your washing here. So he scurried back home, he collected all his dirty washing and took it off to the shop only to realize that the shop was selling signs, it wasn't actually going to do the laundry. So Kierkegaard would say, instead of constructing these big, magnificent systems, which Plato did, and which indeed Spinoza did, and Descartes tried to do, it's much better to think how you yourself personally can live a good life. How are you going to relate to the world? And yes, he was, he was a troubled man, as most of us are, I suppose. I suspect to be human means we're troubled, even though many people don't realize it. 
Final question. Um, I know you have an interest also in Susan Sontag. I'm rereading her book on the cave and photography. In our age of the internet and of social media and our obsession with representation and photography and technology, are we thinking more or less like philosophers in our digital age? What should or shouldn't we be doing, Peter? Again, I, I see, maybe I'm not very good at this sort of program because I recognize their grayness, their gradations. Even so, on the solstice, it's not gray on solstice, uh, 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 Peter, the sun's shining. The sun is shining, yes, but shortly it won't be. And even if the sun is shining, I would still point out there are still millions of people suffering rather unpleasantly at the moment. So I don't think we should escape from that. Nietzsche tried to encourage us not to escape. Well, I tried to recognize we have to recognize that's a big problem. And so how can we live a good life? How can we be well disposed to our lives knowing that so many other people are suffering? He relied on the aphorism that all things conspire. And so however we may think we're detached from what's going on around us in the world, we're not really because all of us to some degree rely on what's happened in the past. All of us, to some degree, relied on slavery in the past and to start pulling down statues. And well, we're walking along roads which relied on slavery in the past. So we are all contaminated to some extent. It's a matter of degree and how reflective we are about it and what we can do to um, try to make amends.